But today we're, um, we're, we're going to be talking about premature celebrating. Premature celebrating. We all know what happens when we prematurely celebrate, right? Can you think of any of those examples of someone prematurely celebrating? Um, now, if you're Steph Curry uh, with the Golden State Warriors and you throw up that three-point shot and you literally, as soon as it leaves your fingers, you start going in the other direction, already knowing it's going to fall in. I mean, you can do that if you're Steph Curry. But we all know how most premature celebrations end. They don't end well. It's someone who's bragging or someone claiming victory when they really indeed don't have victory. One of the most famous ones that comes to my mind um, is a motorcycle racer, Ricardo Russo. In 2012, he's racing. It's the Italian championship. And uh, he comes up off of the accelerator of, of his motorbike. He's on the pegs, standing up on his motorbike, and his fist is, one of his hands, his fist is raised in the air, and he's prematurely celebrating a victory. Do you know how this story ends? Are you familiar with this? You can YouTube it. There's been over several million views of this, but he's prematurely celebrating. The sad part about this story is there's one lap remaining in the race. Russo, bless his heart, he felt like he had won. He felt like he had crossed the finish line, but indeed he hadn't. Uh, it was total embarrassment as other motorcycle racers passed him by, and he realizes, shoot, I've got one more lap to go. Uh, Palm Sunday, here we are. These palm branches, if you're familiar with the story of Jesus and where we're at in this story, this is Passion Week, and today is that uh, Sunday called Palm Sunday, and these palm branches were being used to declare a victory. And I'm just simply asking, was it a premature celebration? Think about that. Uh, followers of Jesus are waving these palm branches. This would be like the Golden State Warriors fans. Hopefully the room is full of those. We're waving our yellow and blue towels, and we are declaring victory before it ever even happens. That's what these palm branches were signifying, the king. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, is entering into the city of Jerusalem. He'll be crucified, he'll, he'll die, he'll be buried, and yet the promise throughout Scripture has been he will rise. Even though that death will take place, victory is already being declared before it even happens. So uh, we're in a series right now called Sin Everywhere. This is not an imperative, <laughs> it's not an encouragement to go sin everywhere, it's, uh, and we're using, uh, by permission, uh, an art installation, a, a picture of that installation called Anti-Mass. This is on display at the De Young Art Museum. And these are real pieces of burnt wood from an arson in, uh, at a church in Birmingham, Alabama. And what it depicts for us is basically the effects of sin have gone everywhere. There's things in your life that has burned you. There's been pain, there's been suffering, there's been dismemberment, all because of this three-letter word, should be a four-letter word, called sin. And basically we're saying sin has happened. A huge crash known as the fall of humanity has happened, and it has got us to where we are right now. There's injustice, uh, there's things that have, about sin that's affected us sexually, politically, intellectually, emotionally, and all the other lees. It's gone everywhere basically. It's as if sin were a, a, a small bottle of poison that got tipped over in the human heart and soul 
and has dripped and leaked every, everywhere. It's in our city. It's, it's all over the place. Yet, as we've been through this series uh, so far called Sin Everywhere, we haven't left ourselves just sitting in that um, truth that, that sin is everywhere. We've ended each message with, there's hope. And that's because the resurrection is also everywhere. Uh, so today's message is called The Victory of God. And we're going to be looking at a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58. And I love this passage for so many reasons. Uh, but there's a simplicity to it. They're basically something that we're supposed to be. There's something that we're supposed to do. And there's something that we're supposed to know that he's going to give us in this passage. So let me, uh, let me read it for us. It's printed there, and then we'll, we'll get started. Uh, Paul, the writer, he's saying, what he's saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These bodies, and that's what I felt two weeks ago when I had the flu, and some of you have been infected by the flu so far, and it really reminds you these bodies are really dying. They're not doing well. So, uh, like me, I'm glad you're back. But he said, these um, dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who will also be transformed, for our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Let's just pray that together. Join me in prayer. Father, today we need to know that these moments that we're living right now is not the end of the story. We need to know that even though sin has gone everywhere and has affected everything and everyone and all cultures and all of human history, that that's not the end of the story. That death is not the end of the story. Suffering, grief, loss, difficulty, that's not the end of the story. So today we... We want to shout. We want to continue singing. We we want to believe that you are indeed victorious, God. You have won the victory. That life will triumph over death. Goodness will triumph over evil. Resurrection wins every time. So, Father, today give us hope. Give us assurance. Help us believe in those places where we don't believe. And Father, give us each uh, what, what we need, all of us. You know us that well. Do what you need to do in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen to this victory chant. 
I think someone even chuckled. It, it's quite uh, almost sarcastic. It's almost like looking at death itself and saying, is that all you got? Is that all you got? Look at it. It's, it's printed there. It's verse 55, and it says, oh, death, as if you can speak to death. And if you've ever lost a loved one or if you've ever been um, deathly ill or you've, you've been around death, Think about looking at death and saying, is that all you got? Is, is that the biggest blow you got? Verse 55, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? This, uh, this verse is used in several other places in the Old Testament. This isn't a new sentiment that Paul is giving us here. It's, it's all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, it's, it's simply looking at death and saying, this is not the end of the story. Death is real. Uh, death steals from us, it comes, it sneaks up on us, but it's not the end of the story. Uh, and I love this word, these words here where he says, a wonderful secret. He, he, Paul, the writer, is saying, I have a wonderful secret to tell you. And he's telling you that these dying bodies, the one that you're in and the one that I'm in, um, those of you who are in Christ believing in this resurrection, not only did Christ rise from the dead that we begin celebrating next week at Easter, But at Christ's return, you get a new body. You get an immortal body. You get a physical new body. And you think, well, will it be an 18-year-old body? Will it be a 22-year-old body? Will I look like Ellis? Will will I have hair like his? Like, what, what will my body look like? We don't know. We do know that the hope, the assurance, the promise is that you will have a new body. Brand new, can't wear out, can't get sick, can't get infected, can't die. These are, I mean, this is a wonderful secret he's telling us, that these dying bodies is not how the story ends. And it's all because of the resurrection of Christ. If you go back and look at the context of this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul, the writer, the apostle, he's defending the resurrection. If you had to choose a resurrection text or one chapter in the entire Bible, 66 books, where would you turn to? This would be your chapter. To look at, be reminded of the truth, the hope of the resurrection. And he's basically saying um, in verse 58 here, there's something that he wants us to be because of this resurrection. So basically he's saying, remember this, victory shapes who you are. God's victory shapes what you think about yourself when you look at yourself in the mirror. It totally changes this whole idea of be. Now, we live in a city where be, be the real you, uh, be all that you are meant to be, and truly we believe that. We're here for those reasons, and God wants us to be that person. But he's wanting us to go a little bit deeper in our identity. A little bit deeper in our identity instead of the being of I'm... Uh, I'm, I'm secure or I'm stable because of the money I make or the job I have or the future that I can see that I think I have. Look at what he's doing here. Um, he uses words like be strong and immovable. You see those words in verse 58? Be strong and immovable. Oh, the things that you and I pour our energy and our uh, affections into to be strong and immovable. Can you think of some? You give your attention to, I give my attention to, so that we might be strong and immovable. We all want to be this way. We all want to appear this way. We want to be strong. No one comes into a room wanting to be weak. 
No one comes in the room not wanting to know the answers. We all desperately are looking to be strong and immovable. And this phrase here, be strong and immovable, means to stay firmly planted. To stay firmly planted. I'm thinking of Psalm chapter 1. If you read the book of Psalms and look at the very first chapter there, it says this person who's trusting God, who's placing their future, their identity in God's hands, that's the person who's stable. That's the person who's immovable, unshakable. Let the storms come. Let the ambiguity rise. Let difficulty and challenge surround that person, yet there's a stability. There's a strength. They're immovable. John chapter 15, Jesus' words to his disciples and us, his disciples, he's saying of himself, I'm the vine. You're the branches. Insofar As you remain in me and I in you, you will be stable. You will be strong. You will be fruitful. And at the end of verse 5, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So Paul's point in mentioning this about us being strong and being immovable, he's, he's in a sense saying, if there's no victory, if there's no resurrection, that is the height of instability that you can imagine. You think your life is unstable now, but if there's no resurrection, that is immense instability. While you may feel incredible stability, if the resurrection really didn't happen, you should fear a whole lot. There there is an instability to your life that's absolutely dreadful. Be strong, be immovable, means to, to stay unshakable. Psalm 125, verse 1, he says, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. It can't be moved. It won't be shaken. That's you. That's your identity. As we gather to to wave these palm branches and as we shout victory, God's victory that he's done this, that is who you are. As you're rooted in him and as you're planted in him. Psalm 23, we're familiar with this one. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of what? Death. I will fear no evil. I will fear nothing because I'm such a bad A or I'm so strong. No, because, oh God, you are with me. That's where the strength and the immovability comes from. I'm planted in him. I'm trusting in him. It doesn't come from me or you. Paul is in no way saying, hey, go be strong. You can do it. I know you can. You look pretty strong. I don't even need to tell you to be strong. You're strong already. Let's find someone else. Okay, you go be strong. He's saying our strength doesn't come from ourselves. The application here, we're all wondering. Verse 57, it says, thank God. Thank God for this identity that's secure for you, that's been won for you. Jesus has done battle for us as a champion on behalf of you, his beloved And he says in verse 57, thank God for winning this victory. Thank God for sharing this victory with you. What if God just won the victory and just said, oh, that was such a great victory. So glad we did that all by ourselves. And I hope this group of humanity, they can figure it out like we did. But boy, we did a good job, didn't we? No, God wins the victory. And then he gives us the victory so that we can share this victory with him. We can part 
with God in this way. God gives us the victory, specifically it says, over sin and death. What in the world does that mean? Victory over sin, you may be wondering. And if you're like me, real quickly you say, certainly that doesn't mean that I've stopped sinning. Victory over sin does not mean that sin is not present in the life of a follower of Jesus. I hope that's very clear. Um, What he's meaning here is that this penalty for sin, the consequence for sin, has been taken care of. That Jesus in all of his mercy, in all of his perfection, has died for you and has died for the world in that way to pay that debt, to be that atoning sacrifice. The penalty's been taken care of. Shout, victory, thank God, he says, because of that. It also means that the bullying power of sin no longer is master over you, dear Christian. If Christ is Lord, you're a a Jesus follower, this bullying power that sin used to have over you no longer has that amount of power over you. Because of Christ's indwelling presence through the Holy Spirit, you have a new master. You have new desires that are springing up inside of you that you don't even understand really where they're coming from. Give thanks to God for that. This is your new identity. Your identity in Jesus is what makes you strong. It's your union in him. If you want to grow in being strong, if you want to grow in being immovable, grow in your identity in Christ. Be reminded of your identity in Christ. That's what we do every Sunday. I mean, that's why we're here. We're here to be reminded. We just sang about it, who God is and who I am in God. That's why we meet up during the week. I need you to remind me of who I am in Christ. You need me to remind you of who you are in Christ so that you can be strong and immovable. And another one of Paul's letters, I love this one, book of Ephesians chapter 6, he's mentioning, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of God's might. Once again, he doesn't say, go be strong. He doesn't leave it ambiguous in that way. He says, go be strong in God's strength, which is already in you. Go live it out. It's there. Give God thanks for the victory that's there. Okay, now on doing. Number two here, on doing. Remember this. God's victory shapes how and why you do what you do. It's that same resurrection reality, that's that same victory that shapes what you do and why and how you do what you do as a mother, a father, uh, a, a filmmaker, an artist, someone who's in tech, like whatever, a student, whatever role you have and whatever thing you do, the resurrection, that victory influences why you do what you do and how you do what you do. And once again, Paul is saying, essentially, if there's no victory, if there's no resurrection, go build a name for yourself. Go do it. Build your name up, your brand up, as high as you can imagine. Shine as many lights on it as you can possibly imagine. Yet, because there's a resurrection, because of this victory of God, it's going to shape what you do and who you do it for. All of that changes. Verse 58, he says, work for the Lord. See, now as a Christian, as a believer, I'm not working to impress my wife. I'm not working. I may have a boss at my job. In fact, all of us do. We all have a boss. But 
This is essentially saying, as a Christian, you have a new boss. You have a new manager. That's the one that you're really working for. And I don't know about you, but that's incredibly liberating. That yes, I have a boss. And yes, you have a boss. And yes, we're working excellently for that boss. Yet ultimately, I'm not working for that boss. I'm working for that boss's 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 boss. He says, work for the Lord. Now, I just simply ask, what qualifies working for the Lord? And if you're like my landlord, my landlord, uh, my old landlord laughs at me for having the job that I have, that quite frankly doesn't understand the work that I do, and says, uh, oh, you, you, you work for the Lord on Sundays, and that's the only day that you work. It totally doesn't get my job or my calling, but um, that is not working for the Lord. That's not what working for the Lord means. It doesn't mean someone who's vocationally a full-time missionary or one of these full-time Christians, that that's their vocation. Um, he's talking about anything that we do can be done unto the Lord. That if you're a garbage collector, do it unto the Lord. If you're a surgeon, do it unto the Lord. If you're an artist, do it unto the Lord. And one of my artist friends, when we first started having this conversation about being a Christian, working unto the Lord as an artist, they quickly asked me, well, does that mean I have to draw crosses and everything I paint and draw? No. No, see, working under the Lord is more about our motive and our heart and how we do what we do and who we're doing it for. That's what Paul is getting after here. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, Paul's writing again. He's trying to shape this new group of believers in a very polytheistic city, much like San Francisco, in the city of Corinth. And he's writing to them, and he's telling this new group of Christians, he says, whatever you eat, or drink, or whatever you do, do all of that for the glory of God. Let it all be unto God. If you're playing piano, if you're in fashion design, if you're a model, again, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. This is the doing that we're supposed to be doing as Christians. So that Christ's presence is in all spheres, all sectors, government, not just church when we're all here as Christians. But in all those places, he's saying, we're all ministers, is what this is saying. It's not just the trained professional clergy that's the ministers. Oh, we'll let them do the, the, the working unto the Lord. No, this is our role. We are that team. This is standard issue for being a Christian. Think about this exercise this coming week. Practice giving your upcoming task to the Lord. There may be a task that you know you have to perform this week that you're already wondering, now how can I do that unto the Lord? (laughs) He says, whatever you do, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. I want you to think about practicing giving your upcoming task to the Lord and maybe even entering into a prayer this coming week before that task. And that task may seem very mundane. Typically, we're tempted to think about some of those tasks as being very mundane, pointless. How does this even fit? But it's at that moment that I'm inviting you to to, to pray a prayer, something like, Lord, 
I'm about to enter into this task or this role that I'm supposed to be and play, but I give you this task. I give you this role before I even get there. I'm already offering it to you. I offer the challenges that I'm going to incur as I step into that role and into that task. I want to go ahead and give you the successes that I may get even as I go into that task or the failures that may come upon me or the persecution that may come upon me or the ambiguity, whatever I'm going to experience, dear Lord, King Jesus, as a Christian and following you, I'm offering my work and my role unto you. That's the doing that God is calling us into doing. We're not called to do what we do perfectly. That's impossible. Look how he expands uh, our working unto the Lord there. What does, he, what does he say? But he says, work enthusiastically for the Lord. What, what in the world does that mean? Okay, first of all, we've been around those people that really don't believe in what they're doing. <laughs> they're just, there's, there's just that kind of mundane, boring going through the motions. And not only is it killing them, but it's killing us watching them as they do it. Right? He's saying, do what you do, whatever that thing is, enthusiastically. For crying out loud, at least believe in what you're doing. And another way of saying that, Paul is writing to another city in Colossae, another new group of believers, a new fledgling little church there in that city. And he's saying in the third chapter of that book, he says, work at what you do with all your heart, as though you're working for the Lord and not for men. It's the same language. It's the same language that what I'm doing, I'm really not doing it for the boss that I'm working for. I want to do it excellently. I should be doing it excellently, especially as a Christ representative. But ultimately, I'm supposed to do it with all my heart as though I'm working for the Lord and not for man. That's so liberating. That's so life-changing to wake up and know that whatever job and role and task you and I have throughout the day that all of it can be done enthusiastically by the power and empowering of the Lord with me. Even if I so dread whatever task it is or it feels like it's just so stupid. Whatever, maybe it's an algebra class or maybe it's something that you like, you know you've got to kind of just uh, get through it. Even in those moments, be encouraged because of the resurrection, because of the victory of God. It shapes why you're about to do what you're about to do and how you're going to do it and who you're going to do it for. This changes everything. Lastly, no. Number three, no. Remember, remember this. Victory shapes the meaning and the purpose of what you do. There is an, a new unleashed sense of purpose. Not only identity with who we're to be, not only the doing for who, we, who we're doing it for, but now this sense of meaning. I mean, look at the promise that's being given here for us. He says at the very uh, end of verse 58, he says, always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. God's victory shapes reality. I want you to think about an artist that is so gifted with able basically to, to know where they're going with the peace that they're about to create. And yet, if we were to watch that person live, 
at times when we watch this peace develop, and as we watch this peace get closer and closer to its true purpose and meaning and its destination, there are times when we go, what the heck is going on? Why was this stroke done here? Or why was this color done here when seven other colors are going to be done on top of that? And why did they start there? God is this creator. God is this creative to take and to use things that you feel is pointless. You and I feel is totally meaningless. doesn't make any sense. God, what are you doing? That's normal for us. Yet be encouraged. Victory shapes reality. God's victory specifically, the resurrection to be most specific, shapes all of reality. And Paul Again, in this beautiful chapter 15, he's essentially saying, if there's no victory, if there's no resurrection, you should eat, drink, and be merry. You should self-medicate. You should find some drug that takes you out of this reality of pain, suffering, injustice, and all the rest. Yet, yet, because there's a resurrection, because there's a resurrection, there's victory. And it shapes the meaning of everything you do. How? How? We've got to be asking that question, how? And I'm, I'm specifically talking about what about when it feels like and looks like there's no purpose at all in what's going on or in what you're doing. That's the real moment, right? It's not in this moment right now when we're all saying, rah, 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 hand me one of those palm branches. It's tomorrow. It's late tonight. It's when we step into one of those perhaps unfulfilling tasks or roles or we begin to think again, how in the world does all this even fit? That's the test. And I think back to one of our brothers in the faith, someone who's in our family photo album, if you will. Uh, His name's Joseph. He shows up in the Old Testament. He shows up in the book of Genesis, chapter 50 in particular. And his story is uh, laden with injustice coming from his own brothers. His own brothers lie to their father that he's been, that he's been uh, killed and basically he's sold a, a, as a slave and there's so much injustice done to Joseph that Joseph endures. But finally in chapter 50 when his brothers finally are in famine, the, the whole world is suffering from famine, they end up coming to their brother Joseph who's in charge of all the food at the time. And Joseph is able to look at them and tell them, you meant it for evil. You intended to hurt me. You orchestrated it. You planned it. You were very intentional with making it all for evil. But God mysteriously meant it for good. That's what Paul is teaching us here. That's what he's mean. By, by wanting the, the, the victory of Jesus to shape who we are, what we do, I'm also thinking of Jesus on the cross this week, right? We're in Passion Week. Think about Jesus, specifically this Friday, called Good Friday. Why in the world is it called Good Friday? It's quite awful, isn't it? Our Savior is is going to die this coming Friday as we think and work ourselves through Passion Week. But Jesus is declaring to his disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm going to go ahead and tell you the future. I'm going to go ahead and tell you what's going to happen. It's going to look like and feel like I've totally abandoned you. Yet it's good. 
It's to your advantage, he even says in the book of John. It's to your advantage that I leave you. I will always be with you. I'm going to rise. (laughs) Jesus, yet on that cross this week, I want you to think about Jesus quoting Psalm 22, where he cries out in grief, Oh God, oh God, or my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? Even Jesus is feeling what we feel sometimes, that it's pointless, it's meaningless. What is it all leading to? But yet the Christian, the follower, is surrendering, surrendering moment by moment, day by day, to the kingship and the lordship and the purpose and the beautiful plan that God has for us, even in the middle of it feeling like we have no idea where it's going or that it's insignificant. Therefore, he says to another small, fledgling little church in Galatia, little church there, he's writing to those group of Christians, and he says, therefore, because of this resurrection and these palm branches and this victory, because of that reality, he says, let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. You're headed in the right direction. You're believing in the Lord Jesus. It's not a joke. It's not a lie. It's not a trick. It's not a power play. It's victory. Believe in me, he's saying. Practice this this week. Try this exercise. Lord, I choose to believe that my labor is not in vain. I choose to believe that because of your resurrection. I choose to believe that only you could be so creative to bring about beauty from something that feels so dark and so perhaps dead. I choose to believe that all of these mysterious puzzle pieces, you really do see them all. And you really are orchestrating a beautiful mosaic that I can't imagine. In conclusion, this coming week, this coming week, Passion Week, you and I may be uh, invited to think about past pain, past injustice, past things that you've gone through. Maybe it's been abuse. Maybe it's been injustice that you've experienced or that you've watched or witnessed. And that's an opportunity for us to put on lens and look through those lens of the resurrection at that suffering and at that injustice. And at that pain and suffering and loss that you and, I, you and I have all experienced in the past, it's also an opportunity to look forward and go ahead and claim the victory. And back to that motorcycle racer that we started with who looked like a total fool. He was a total fool. He announced later on in the papers that he felt like a total fool for proclaiming victory before it ever happened. Those who hope in the Lord are not fools. Those who claim the victory and receive the victory and believe in the victory, not only past, present, but future, are not fools. Let's just pray together right now and invite God to minister to us. Father, thank you for your words of truth. Thank you for the resurrection we celebrate. We celebrate. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your victory over sin and over death. 
Right now, we pray in these quiet moments, you would speak to us as we begin to think about those tasks and those roles that we'll enter into this week. And you're calling us to be strong, be immovable as we abide in you and rest in you and trust in you. And you're calling us to work enthusiastically unto the Lord. So Lord, help us go ahead and give you our tasks and our roles and our future. And lastly, you're wanting us you're wanting us to know that because of the resurrection, there's new meaning, there's new purpose, that everything fits even when it's confusing to us. Father, thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for Easter. Thank you for that victory that's, that's ours because of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.